Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. And here at Drilling Deep, we talk about oil and diesel. The latter comes from the former. The former comes from the ground. And you have to drill for it to get it. So that's why the show is called Drilling Deep. We also have a guest of the week. This week, it's Laura Rainier of Gartner. Gartner is a technology consulting firm. They also run this big Gartner Supply Chain Symposium, which I attended last month. I will tell you that she talks about something kind of very geeky, scope three emissions. And while she doesn't come right out and say it, I will tell you right now, if you don't know what scope three emissions are, and you think that it's never going to really impact you, and you can just avoid the whole issue, you could not be more wrong. This is going to impact you, and you can get informed on this issue by listening to Laura. I thought we'd sort of hopscotch through some oil news, because there isn't really one big thing that jumps out at me regarding uh, the market right now. So scanning the globe, here's what I can tell you. U.S. inventories of ultra-low sulfur diesel this week are really still too tight for this time of year. They are up a little over 9 million barrels from where they were a little more than a month ago. That was at a very low number, less than 100 million barrels. But if you look at where they are compared to the last five or six years for the fourth report of June, they are very, very low compared to the five-year average, which is what most comparisons usually are, are measured at. Now, part of the reason this, they're very low is because we had this big, giant surge in 2020. But even if you throw out 2020 and use the last six years minus 2020, it's still about 90% of normal. And that number includes last year when they were really, really low. So we are now going to into our second consecutive winter and harvest season with tight diesel inventories. If you're a consumer, it is something to be concerned about. Moving on around the world. Water levels on the Rhine River in Europe are getting really low again. The Rhine is a key waterway where gasoline and diesel barges move up and down to supply Switzerland, Germany, and the Netherlands directly. When the water levels are low, like they were last, like they were are now, and they were last year, it limits the amount of diesel that can be placed on a barge and sent down or up the river. This is generally seen as bullish because anything that limits supplies is uh, going to be affected. But there's also the possibility that U.S. exports to Europe may be affected because if you can't move it down the Rhine into the interior of Europe and, and you can't move it to those end users, then what is the point of exporting it? I do think the Rhine levels are more bullish than bearish, but it's another factor that could impact diesel markets in coming weeks. Remember, the fact that you're in the U.S. is irrelevant. Diesel markets are global and an impact in one place has ripple effects elsewhere. Then we've got the crude oil supply-demand situation, or the balance, and the price of oil, the price of crude oil, which is really spitting in the face of OPEC plus reductions in supply, and on top of that, the looming cutbacks by Saudi Arabia, on top of what they already were contributing to the OPEC plus reductions. 
When OPEC Plus in early April announced reductions in output that were to begin May 1st and had begun, the price of crude was just under $80 per barrel. The Saudis then announced their own cut, about a million barrels a day. On Wednesday, the price of crude, as measured by the global benchmark rent, was down to less than $73. So we're down about uh, 7 to $8 from where we were before these cutbacks, so there's really been no impact. The argument here is that the group is playing the long game, and that unless there's a significant recession, the supply-demand balance, so the supply-demand forecast, for the rest of the year looks pretty tight. Let's note that the weekly statistics from the Energy, Energy Information Administration that came out this week had a big drop in crude of about 9 million barrels in one week. That's a big decline for one week. Could this be the start of the great rebalancing and the tighter market that comes, the tighter market that has been predicted? One other thing to note, the U.S. government has been selling oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve now for several months. This is not the oil that the Biden administration released last year when Russia invaded Ukraine. That program is over. Instead, these sales are part of a longer-term sale that was authorized in the last year or the, or the last year or two of the Obama administration. But those sales are over now, and that crude has been a bearish factor. That mean, but, but now you have to take it out of the equation. Most of the market bears are relying pretty much completely on the idea that global oil demand is soft and likely to be softer. They point to projections of a possible recession and the reality that China is not doing the big post-COVID rebound that a lot of people thought they were going to do. The bears are not really taking talking about excess supply on its own because the outlook for supply and demand looks pretty bullish. That's your summary of a few things going on in the oil world here as we approach the start of summer. Time to move on here now on freight waves. Scope 3 emissions proves to me that anybody in the logistics business who thinks that they can hide from the growing environmental pressures and ESG, they're just fooling themselves. You're probably wondering what scope three emissions are. Here to talk about it today on Drilling Deep is Laura Rainier. She is a senior research director in the talent and sustainability practice at Gartner. Gartner is a research and consulting firm with a particularly large presence in logistics. I became intrigued by their work with scope three emissions at their recent supply chain symposium in Orlando. I did not hear Laura speak, but I did hear one of her colleagues speak on this issue, and I knew right away that I wanted to get that speaker or somebody from Gardner, and we've got Laura here, uh, to talk about scope three emissions on Drilling Deep. So, uh, Laura, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, first thing, define scope three emissions. Yes. Um, well, scope-free emissions comes from the Greenhouse Gas Protocol. So the Greenhouse Gas Protocol is the global standard for measuring our greenhouse gas emissions in our supply chain. Essentially, you might have heard of that as um, referred to as a carbon footprint. Um, and so our scope-free emissions are all of the emissions or the carbon footprint that occur in our, our value chain and in an organization's value chain, both upstream emissions and downstream emissions. So some of the biggest contributors to scope-free emissions um, for most companies with the supply chain are, are coming from purchased goods and services, right? The things we're buying, um, use of sold products, meaning the, the things that we're selling, right? And, and the ultimate downstream impacts associated with that. And of course, transportation and distribution. So scope three emissions might be, let's say you're a, you're a manufacturer of widgets and you've got a highly efficient, energy efficient operation and you use suppliers who are all highly efficient. But then it turns out that your, uh, some of your suppliers, some of your suppliers maybe get their electricity from some really dirty coal plant. 
that impact is going to affect your total emissions, correct? Correct. Okay. So scope three emissions are not, see, I came into it a little confused. I thought that scope three emissions were from that, that, that sort of second level down. So there's you as the first level. I guess really the second level would be your direct suppliers. And the third level would be the suppliers to the suppliers. Um, in fact, scope three emissions include all three levels. Yes, really. Um, scope three emissions are, are anything that you might have an impact on. And so if you're an auto manufacturer and you're purchasing steel, right, um, that that all the way up to the the kind of mining of metals is is going to be part of your scope three emissions. Organizations will will scope their scope three emissions differently. Uh, but generally, we'll, we'll be looking at that full value chain impact. Now, are we at the point where if I wanted to know, let's we'll, we'll call my company Kingston Widgets. If I wanted to know Kingston Widgets, scope three emissions. Would all my suppliers down the line probably have that information? If I'm looking, I'm not sure how it's measured, you know, tons of CO2 emitted, emitted into the atmosphere every year. Uh, you know, if, if I'm supplying scope three emissions data up the chain, how is it measured? Yeah, it's a great question because I think initially it can feel pretty overwhelming. So scope three emissions are reported as carbon dioxide equivalent. Um, so we're typically looking at something like metric tons carbon dioxide equivalent. But but the data that we use to get there can vary, right? We can use um, specific data on energy consumption. So your widget organization might ask your supplier and, and their supplier and so on, all of the energy consumption that is taking place in their, in their operations and then allocate a portion to you. Um, but we can also use things like um, economic data, right? How much are we spending? to estimate our emissions. Um, we can also look at activity-based data, so mass or volume, to start to estimate um, those carbon dioxide equivalent emissions. Uh, so these approaches kind of vary in terms of their accuracy. And importantly, they they can ultimately vary in terms of your company's ability to take action to impact the numbers. So for example, if I want to reduce my emissions using a spend-based method, the main lever I have, right, is to spend less, not necessarily um, you know, always the easiest activity to, to take on. So really important to ensure that the data strategy, the way that you're asking for data from your supply chain, strikes that right balance between scalability and accuracy. I mean, what really strikes me now is that there may be, may, I'm going to say there's a divide and maybe I'm wrong, there's not a divide. My guess is that there are a lot of companies out there, not just in the supply chain, but in business in general, who think that maybe this is a fad, maybe they've got some political opposition to it, but that if you're in business, and you've got people you're doing business with, and that's everybody, it's going to be very difficult to stay away from this. You're going to have to really know what your carbon footprint is, because even if you don't care uh, what the footprint is of the people you're dealing with kind of like on the way in, you're very much like very likely to have to be able to provide that information on the way up the chain to your ultimate consumers. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. I think we're seeing you know, a, a lot of momentum around, you know, organizations reporting on their greenhouse gas emissions because their their customers are asking them to. So their B2B customers um, are often asking for for this type of data. So even if you're, it's not part of your values, um, you know, certainly starting to, to become required as kind of a being a player in a major value chain. I mean, let's point out here that the requirement is not really coming from any kind of government mandate. I mean, maybe it will eventually. Maybe if you're in a place like California, it might be. Certainly, a lot of companies are dealing with, with you know, carbon regulations out there, but not all companies are. So um, this really is, I don't know if I want to call it a bottom-up or top-down or sideways in, but I mean, if a company, a major 
company that you're doing business with that you don't want to lose as a as a counterparty uh, is requiring this, it, you're just not going to be able to sit on the sideline. Yeah, I think we're seeing some regulatory momentum, right? Some some kind of um, activity happening at, um, for example, from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. So if you're a public company, there might be an expectation that you'll need to provide some some of your scope three emissions data down the line. That still remains to be seen, and I think we'll find out more later this year. Um, but and and certainly some activity in Europe as well. But the I, the key driver, and, and it shows up in our data, uh, the majority of organizations report that they are taking on and, and starting to build a strategy around scope three emissions because of their their customers' requirements. Right, and so yeah, and and it, it, some customers will have management that's extremely devoted to this and consider it a major goal. Others might be going along just to go along, but it doesn't matter. The information would still be gathered. Absolutely. And, you know, regardless of their motivations, I think many of them do see the overall operating context shifting, right? And so, um, and, and they're global organizations in many cases that are requiring these things, right? So um, if you have operations in a place that is subject to some of these laws, you're looking at building a global strategy to address it, to get ahead of, you know, some of those other areas that might be a little bit behind. Yeah, let's talk about the presentation I saw at the Gardner Supply Chain Symposium. It was given by your colleague, Jose Reyes not to be confused with the former Mets shortstop, um, but obviously good enough that I was intrigued by it and wanted to discuss it. Is scope three emissions kind of the scariest in the sense that it's kind of so far removed from your business that you really have to worry whether you're going to be able to get accurate data and and also that you, you have very little influence on it? Yeah. I think that's the big challenge, right? Those are the, the two big um the two big challenges around scope three, right? You as an organization are really required to to drive some progress and to influence emissions that you don't necessarily own, right? That you can't directly impact. And so it's a lot of, you know, using the right incentives, right? Um, that said, I, there's a lot that organizations can do when they look within, right? If they look within their own procurement practices or their own contracting behavior, their requirements of suppliers, um, scope three exists because it, we have some influence over it, right? And so um, certainly important for us as organizations to look at what what can we do to drive some of this progress and and to really focus where we where we have the most influence. We don't have direct influence, but where we have those strong partnerships, um, that's you know really important place to start. So, what kind of work does Gartner do for its clients on it? Are you recommending strategies, or are you just kind of a we'll call sounding board, but just providing people with information on what's out there? Or are you working with them and constructing approaches to lowering the carbon footprint, whether it's on scope one, scope two, or scope three? Let's note that scope one would be me, Kingston Widgets, right? Scope two would be my direct suppliers or direct customers, or I guess mostly suppliers. And then scope three would be kind of out there like the electric utility, correct? Sort of. So scope one would be your direct emissions, meaning any emissions that occur on site. So, um, you know, if, if, Kingston Widgets has a boiler that's operating its manufacturing facility. Any of the fuel consumed in that boiler is your direct emissions. If you own a truck, um, that truck's emissions are, are your direct emissions. Um, but actually, scope two is any of your purchased energy. So that, again, that Kingston Widgets manufacturing facility probably uses electricity. Um, your scope two emissions is actually your, your electricity um you know, purchase electricity emissions. And then scope three is everything else, all of the upstream and downstream impacts. Uh, well, now, it, and, yeah. So if I made my widgets from plastic and I had to buy X number of tons of plastic, mm. um, the footprint of that plastic supplier would be a scope three emitter? Correct. I see. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. So anyway, back to my earlier question. So what sort of things does Gartner do for mm-hmm. their customers in the in the, the world of scope emissions? Absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the big things we'll do is just kind of help to frame a strategy around how do we how do we begin to get our arms around it, right? So so really giving our clients a sense of, you know, hopefully a little bit of ownership, right? What what can you do to get started? And so, um, you know, I tend to say that that first step is really building a baseline. And it's not a one and done. It is kind of an iterative approach, but starting to determine what are the key drivers of impact, right? What are the big things that are likely, um, you know, material to my overall emissions impact and my scope three footprint and starting to gain better data, right, where it really matters. So we can support them to kind of determine um, a strategy around data. And then we can start to help them determine what are those levers of impact, right? Depending on those key drivers, where can we where can we take action, right? So it might be, you know, in a transportation context, looking at what are the um, optimization opportunities? How do we how do we optimize the network to reduce emissions, or how do we determine perhaps um, opportunities for for shifting modes or shifting vehicles, right? Um, and then ultimately, we help them to determine like what are the things that we should be doing today? How do we build that into a roadmap over the long term, and and how do we then you know structure that that vision uh, to 2030 or 2050, you know, depending on kind of the term of our goals. So really supporting clients kind of throughout that path. Are you getting calls from potential clients who say, look, I really don't like all this. I think it's a pain. I think it's silly and stupid, but I know I have to go along with this. So why don't you come in and help me? <laughs> I guess I mean, you know, I'm, talking, I'm thinking about the people who are just maybe the last resistors to this and they're just mm-hmm. blowing in the towel. They're saying, you know what, we got to do this, like it or not. So let's call Gartner for some help. Absolutely. I think I don't always get it that bluntly, um, but we do get, you know, definitely, you know, clearly probably reluctant, um, not necessarily bought in out of passion or, you know, um, something that they feel their company needs to be doing um, out of the goodness of their heart. But but I think more and more organizations are starting to see the tea leaves, right? Starting to see that this is, um, you know, there are increasingly requirements that are that are shifting them in this direction and that it's in their interest to have a strategy around their their overall value chain footprint. And let's point out again, I think I may have touched on this, but most of this is not coming from any kind of a regulatory structure. It is coming from kind of a building business ethos. Um, Though maybe some of the companies you're dealing with are under a regulatory regime. I mentioned uh, California. What are some of the regulations? Where's some of the the regulatory pressure coming from that might be growing vis-a-vis the amount of sort of private sector pressure? Yeah, I think I'll maybe just kind of start by taking a, a giving it like a broad answer to that question, right? I think that overall, the the context is shifting. And so I don't necessarily see it as, is it a regulatory requirement? Is it a customer requirement? Or is it an investor requirement? I think all of those are kind of part of the same story, right? That um, our customers require or, or recognize that overall, um, there are some regulatory shifts that are likely to accelerate in the future. That's why they're building a strategy, right? Our investors are looking 10 years out and saying there might be a carbon tax in the future. So, you know, we need to get ahead of this and start to have a strategy to assess and reduce our emissions. So I tend to see it as an overall um, kind of part of the same story. Um, ha- having said that, to your point, certainly um, we're seeing the key driver um, is, is not necessarily regulatory requirements, right? It is that kind of overall ethos, this this um, you know general customer uh, push to to become a you know a, a, a greener, a more sustainable, overall kind of responsible organization. 
Yeah, we, we don't want to get too political here on Drilling Deep, and I'm sure you don't mm-hmm. either, but the kind of thing you're saying is why, you know, if I hear some political leaders talk about, you know, we're really going to push back against ESG, I, I can't help but feel like, you know, that, 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 that the barn door closed. I mean, the horse is gone. This is not going to come going to come back to the good old days. This is this is a standard, and companies are going to continue to to follow it. You you would think, you know, you never know that there are times when maybe the costs get pretty high to comply, and they feel that there's no regulatory reason they might back off from that. I mean, I think that's there's always that factor too that if you if it gets a little if the pressure gets high, that companies may back off. What do you think of that theory? I think that you're right that the train has left the station. I think that it is horse on it, right? Okay. You're right. Or the horse that the barn door is, is closed or <laughs> well, pick your expression, right? Okay. Um, this is this is happening. Um, and and we are seeing it outside our windows, right? I think everyone drinks water and breathes air, right? Regardless of your political affiliation. And so um, you know, we are you and I, right, in the New York area, can, uh, recently saw the Orange Day, right? Um, and, and we're all experiencing these impacts of climate change in in real time. And so I think as that happens more regularly, the stakeholder push is going to continue, right? And I think that we, and and then regardless of, of your political affiliation, there is going to be, you know, pressure whether regulatory customer or investor to take action and address our footprint. And by the way, there's a whole lot of business opportunity there, right? So one of the regulations I I neglected to mention was the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Which is not necessarily a stick, right? More of a carrot, but providing a whole lot of opportunity for organizations that are investing in solutions that are lower carbon. So I think that we're starting to see, you know, both the carrot and the stick in the regulatory and overall investor and, and customer environment that's that's moving this all, you know, towards that need to understand and address our value chain impact. I went to the CeroE conference in March in Houston. And, you know, the joke down there was they should rename it Hydrogen Week. And the, the talk about the Inflation Reduction Act was just gushing because of the very, you know, they, they, one thing they, they said about it was it's very simple. You know, the incentives are not some real complex thing that you need to read 100 pages to figure out that the tax credits for producing and then using green hydrogen were really substantial. And um, so, you know, I just want to say that to affirm what you're saying about the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, this was a, a meeting of 7,000 people and everybody was, uh, was singing the praises of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I do know that, you know, every company is different. The kind of business they're in uh, differs and the kind of things that they can do to reduce their in, their own specific scope one emissions or maybe to encourage the reductions down the line all differ. But what are some of the low-hanging fruit uh, solutions that you may have advised companies to follow? Absolutely. So if we're thinking about transportation and distribution, you know, we typically see some of the first opportunities in um, that that are also cost optimization opportunities. I think I alluded to some earlier around, you know, shifting modes, right? You hear a lot of, you know, shifting from air freight to sea freight, for example. Um, and, and you know, things like shifting from, uh, and often overlooked one is inland waterway, right? So shipping by waterway, particularly in Europe, you see this to be a bit more common rather than shipping by truck. Um, so finding opportunities that that are actually not costing us anything, often saving us money, uh, but are ultimately going to be 
saving some emissions. Um, network optimization is another thing, right? Looking more strategically at where are the different nodes, the different manufacturing facilities and distribution centers in our supply chain footprint. And, and can we think about optimizing for greenhouse gas emissions as well as optimizing for cost, right? So starting to just kind of ensure that our greenhouse gas emissions are kind of part of the decision-making framework is a really important first step to then kind of inform decision-making in service of, you know, any any emissions reduction goals we might have. Um, I would say those are probably some of the most kind of low-hanging fruit. I think the other thing that I would say, you know, I often recommend is to seek partnerships, right? So seek opportunities to engage, not for the sake of engaging. Find those partnerships that provide really tangible outcomes, but but seek ways to really align with the broader industry. And, um, you know, so that we're not all going to our suppliers asking them to do different things, right? We can we can really simplify that message and simplify that next step. Um, that helps us build that influence that we talked about earlier. That can be such a challenge. You know, one thing I should note, you know, I mentioned about zero week and hydrogen and just the whole field. You know, I meet a lot of people tend to be young uh, who are in this field, and there are some really smart people that are focused in on this. This is, you know, people can complain all they want about the government mandates or whatever, but I'll tell you one thing. I don't know how this is all going to play out, but however it does, it's not going to fail because of lack of brain power. There are some really smart people pursuing this. What would you uh, kind of give me your comment, thinking like a finger wagging speech, maybe that you would give to somebody sitting on the fence and saying, you know, I just, I just don't want to get involved in this right now. I got my business to run and I'll worry about it later. What would you say to them? I would say, you know, those smart people, many of them are passionate and involved because they care. And I think many of them see that that this is a huge opportunity. I think one of the biggest business opportunities in history. And I think, you know, we, if you get involved um, and you start to think, um, you know, kind of through this lens of, you know, improved emissions reduction, uh, sustainability, we start to identify some real opportunities, whether it's cost saving, whether it's value creation. Um, there, there's some opportunity here. It's not just another thing we have to do, um, but rather it's, um, I, I think it's a huge business opportunity and one that um, those those smart people are, are getting ahead of. So, so I really look forward to and um, I'm encouraged by the brain power of, um, you know, people that are really, really working hard in this area. And and that's what keeps me here, right? That's what keeps me kind of focused on on this work is that, you know, I, I really believe there are great solutions that we just haven't uncovered yet. Well, maybe you can talk about them next year at the Gardner Supply Chain Symposium. And I don't know if it's in Orlando again. I certainly would like to go and we'll look for maybe you to make a presentation on it. And I'm, I will be sure to be there. I look forward to that. So we want to thank Laura Rainier. She's been our guest today on Drilling Deep. She's a senior research director at Gartner, the research and consulting firm that has a particular focus on the supply chain. Laura, thanks again for coming in. Thanks so much, John. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. And of course, you can find us on Freightways TV. I'm your host, John Kingston. And please join us again 